0: It is season 2 and episode 1. Get informed about social justice architecture. The Fram episode. Starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. Well, hello, and I want to welcome you back. It's the August 2023 month, and this is also the start of season two of that Fram episode. Before I get to season two, I'm going to do a recap of season one, and those uh, episodes are available through the RSS feed, Spotify, Apple. Uh, as well and google so let's get to the recap before we start the new season officially well in season one we have restorative justice practices in schools this episode uh one covers what is currently going on what's the state and what needs to be done and the point of the episode was to come across with ideas about what else can be used in school districts across the U.S., and particularly the West Coast. From what I had researched, there's not enough being done. There's piecemeal efforts being done, piecemeal approaches, and there are not enough school districts using a full restorative justice program of changing and revitalizing or uh improving a community. In episode two, we have civil harassment campaigns to how to identify them, the elements involved in a civil harassment campaign and the current rise of hate incidences and hate crimes across the U.S. uh, besides the West Coast. In episode three, the West Coast wines and social justice efforts focused on the current state of the wine industry. What are their efforts uh, to Uh, focus on social justice in communities and neighborhoods in their state, and particularly focusing on the West Coast, Oregon, Washington, and California. Uh, The state, from what I had researched, uh, there are still a growing number of wineries and vineyards getting involved and doing uh, what they can, but it's not enough. There needs to be more done, and it needs to be in a more coordinated fashion. In episode four, Uh, of season one, Gender Equality Interventions and Social Justice. Basically, it's enough about complaining about the workplace. Uh, It is terrible that we lost and were not able to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, due in part because of the governor of Virginia. And it is unacceptable that to this day we still have not gotten this amendment uh, and officialized, that made it official uh, and moved on. But The point of the episode was to stop complaining. Now offer suggestions, uh, examples that what can be done in the workplace, interventions already. And looking at starting at the institutional level in regards to pushing for equal rights uh, in the workplace and see how that influences uh, across the board socially. Episode five of season one, destroying disinformation campaigns as a part of social justice. Why is it social justice? Because disinformation campaigns can be very dangerous. They can harm individuals. They can harm groups of people in a society. They can do tons of damage to economies. So this is a situation where, yes, uh, it's a piecemeal situation going on in certain areas. We are gradually picking up the speed, but it's not fast enough in the U.S. in regards to tackling and managing information ecosystems that are damaged, uh, by disinformation campaigns. This episode offers a pathway to, uh, hopefully at the very least manage, if not destroy all, uh, disinformation campaigns, especially since next year, where we're coming around, um, election season again. So that's the wrap recap. That's a recap on season one. And now we're going to get into season two and I look forward to your continued uh, support and listening. Uh, and, uh, let me start with season two, episode one, social justice and architecture. In episode one of season two, I intend to inform listeners on this subject of social justice architecture, not necessarily an update. But to offer examples of the efforts currently going on on the West Coast, not every effort, but to highlight uh, what seems to be most visible in the news and what is being reported. Now, I have to get to the history. You know, uh, from past episodes, I have to present some information, historical information, a context. And we talk about architecture in general, a lot of U.S. architecture has been rounded in a European worldview, in a sense, building whiteness into buildings, building whiteness into structures. In my 2011 article with Dr. Eric Margolis, uh, we, we comment on the archival process of documenting school design in the 1950s and the 1960s. So I talk about the archival process. I'm talking about archives that show images or videos or texts from earlier years to document or to show proof and evidence. And in this 2011 article uh, called Architectural and Built Environment Discourses in an Educational Context, the Gotsko and Schleissner Collection, myself and Dr. Margolis, we identify how archives perpetuate and show middle class whiteness as power ideologies through the constructing of schools, built environments in the 1950s and 60s in the U.S. School structures became visual displays of class and social status, hence conspicuous consumption. Schools became symbols of white power, modern interior designs. Uh, incorporated furniture, showcase areas, large grassy and tree-filled grounds, large library spaces with seating, large classroom windows to let in sunlight, and more, drawing on many obvious similarities to largely white suburban middle-class houses. The cross-cultural references to Across the Tracks or the other side of town, where minorities were already located, towns and cities still today segregate through architecture. And segregation still occurs with consumers orientated towards needing to live near a well-funded or better school in a suburban area, Uh, whereas in contrast, other consumers unable to afford to buy a house and to live in that area and have their kids go to that school. So we still are dealing with segregation problems. And a lot of the research I have done in this area for this episode There are a lot of articles published in the last five years that toss out solutions, but many solutions seem unreachable because they are out of context and don't offer clear practical paths uh, to improve city and state policies, uh, unequal zoning laws, unequal planning processes, discriminatory financing processes. And so let me give you an idea of just some of the articles that I was reading for research before I get to listing some solutions. So we have William Bates, a 2019 article, Social Justice by Design. We also have a California College of of the Arts in San Francisco. They have on their website access to an article called How Architectural Design Can Improve Social Equity. Architectural Digest has a 2020 article by Megan O'Neill, Why Justice in Design is Critical to Repairing America. There's also uh, Rethinking the Future. They have a 2022 article, An Overview of Social Justice Architecture. When we talk about social justice architecture, we define it as putting the user at the center of a design process, designing without bias for people uh, and the marginalized, looking at how bias plays into the production of architecture in the US, and removing obstacles for those who are marginalized. We also look at several articles If you're interested in more, I also read a few more um, from terrain.org. There's an article from 2023: Architecture is a social justice issue. It's by William Letty. There's also another article called Unsprawl, a Sweet Water Spectrum Community in Sonoma, California by Marsha Maidum. And so there are numerous articles out there that offer solutions, but it seems like a lot of the solutions, are they doable? And so I'm going to give you a list of the solutions uh, that I grabbed from these articles. And I ask you, the listener, what is doable now? What has to change to make some solutions doable soon? What has to change to make the rest of the solutions doable later? Who benefits from the changes? Who does not benefit from the changes? And so a lot of the solutions that the articles thrown out included And some of this is happening already, and some of it is not. Removing overtly racist emblems and monuments from towns and cities, erect monuments for marginalized histories, include a diversity of voices at every level of design processes, including planning, zoning, financing, construction, and design. Listen to and engage a broad spectrum of stakeholders. Restructure public spending, banking, and planning. Redesign incarceration in prisons to produce a citizen, not tear down a citizen. Reconceptualize using Henry LeFevre's theory of production of space. Space is understood as a process, not a container. More solutions that were listed, including making design professions more inclusive, which is going on right now in a lot of colleges uh, of design and architecture programs. Also, include early design education in elementary schools. I have not heard nearly enough about that. Architects pushing for site selection to be in underserved communities. Incorporate universal design, which is a design for all principle. Add spaces for serenity for those with autism to enjoy. Use healthy and non-toxic materials in building. Include thermal comfort for all. Use biophilic design which has connections to nature with healing properties. So we have a lot of solutions out there being offered, but what is reachable? What is obtainable? What is doable now? What is it doable soon? What has to be uh, changed in order to do these solutions? As I had stated, a lot of these solutions seem like they're just so out of context as to still looming issues going on uh, at multiple levels. So, discriminatory financing practices. Uh, let me give you a history, quick history, uh, about discriminatory financing practices because this is still an ongoing problem. I mean, in the 1930s, you had the Home Owners Loan Corporation that created maps, redlining maps. Uh, they redlined communities, meaning they marked racial and ethnic minority neighborhoods in red and then used other colors to To give certain meanings the red label meant hazardous to lenders and in 1948 the supreme court deemed racially restrictive deed covenants unenforceable and then we started getting into fair uh, legislation 1968 we got the fair housing act was enacted it protected people from discrimination when they were were, when they rented or they bought a house when they tried to get a mortgage where they're seeking housing assistance or even engaging in any type of housing-related activity. And then we move up further, closer. In 1974, Congress passes the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. and In 1977, Community Reinvestment Act, it's enacted to prevent redlining and to encourage banks and savings associations to help meet credit needs of all communities. Now, yes, we've come far, and we've uh, had a lot of... uh, policies and laws put in place for protection, but there's still discriminatory practices going on. We've seen in the news every day, somebody, a wonderful black family wants to buy a house in a certain neighborhood because they want their children to go to a certain school, but they are uh, totally overpriced in the, the when, even when they have their, uh, when they're trying to sell their existing house uh, appraisals, people complaining about uh, being taken advantage of uh, in regards to appraisals. The effects of discriminatory lending practices run deep. There are higher interest rates for Black and Latinx and Hispanic uh, applicants. There's lower loan approval rates. There's lower personal wealth. There's corporate uh, redlining of low amount of small business loans in Black and Latinx and Hispanic neighborhoods. Uh, Not as many small business loans given out the what amounts to uh, a wealth gap even the Los Angeles area to this day there's still an issue of uh, a wealth gap going on and we have to clean up this mess before we can even ch- attempt some of the solutions for social justice architecture that was a lot of the uh, information i was in my research process that i was finding about still Still discriminatory practices to this day. The other information I uh, had come upon, repeated information, were about prisons. we talk about prisons, basically, we talk about the pipeline to prison, schools as pipelines of prisons. Uh, we still have communities that are still experiencing that uh, unequal um, situation. And the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit journalism organization, They post a lot of information about updates on social architecture and changing prisons, trying to produce uh, an involved and informed citizen uh, after their uh, offenses, after they have committed offenses. And for example, the Marsh Project has an article from 2017, Reimagining Prison with Frank Gehry. Prisons as a college campus, prisons as a monastery—the concept of designing and building these structures to produce a better citizen, not tear down a citizen. In 2019, article: Architecture and Prison Reform, uh, making uh, having smaller prisons as civic and community assets and integrated into the surrounding neighborhood with programs in place to help reentry. Uh, those these programs can include mental health and social service programs. These smaller types of prisons, maybe campus-like cluster of low-rise dorms with communal kitchens and grassy and tree areas, and even spaces for inmates to experience assimilation of life outside of prison. 2023 article: They have new jail projects create more humane spaces, projects that focus on restoration instead of punishment. So the Issues are still out there that we have to grapple with that I think are predominant uh, right now. And in order to implement some of the solutions that I had listed from articles that had stated them, we have to ta- still tackle these situations. I'm going to play some, a video from Deanna Van Buren. She is an architect. She is an owner of an organization called Designing Justice and Designing Spaces in San Francisco she uh was invited to do a lecture a bomber lecture series early early this year in twenty twenty three to talk about social justice and architecture and redesigning uh spaces prisons to make them restorative uh and uh to give it a sense where inmates can experience a assimilation of life outside of prison to give them hope and and a goal to achieve uh to Um, better themselves and improve themselves or heal themselves as well and so i'm going to play uh, uh, some audio on her comments on what her organization and what she's been doing Uh, what she some of what she has to say i think can be applied in general terms not just uh exclusive to redesigning prisons Uh, You can look at communities that are dealing with wealth gaps and looking at communities that are dealing with inequalities and you can redesign and replan those spaces. And I think uh, some of what she has to say can be uh, used uh, in different situations and different types of neighborhoods and what different types of issues these neighborhoods are dealing with. So listening to uh, Deanna Van Buren, as I said, she's the owner of the Designing Justice and Designing Spaces organization in San Francisco.
1: What do we do? What do we build instead? And then how do we do it, right? That it's not just enough to come up with a thing, the how to get there, the process by which we do that is really critical. And so one thing, this is 12 steps, step number one, right? Let's design for regenerative systems, right? systems that actually work, that are actually... Uh, supporting our, our ways of being as people. And restorative justice was a huge inspiration for me. When I heard about restorative justice, I was like, oh yeah, I wanna design for that system. This is an old system. This is what we had before we had the European model that was exported here. What it said is that when a harm has been, crime has been committed or harm that's been done, it is a breach of relationship. And that the person who has been harmed, their needs have to be addressed. And the person who's committed the offense is obligated to make amends. And it brings people together, right? To create a plan to address the offenders conduct so they can repair the breach, repair the relationship, come back to the community unstigmatized, coming from a time we cannot afford to throw away our people. We still can right? We just do it. And so these are Truth and Reconciliation Courts of South Africa, Gachatra Courts of Rwanda, family group conferencing. It can be used in every kind of harm you can imagine and is. It's growing, and it works, and it costs about an eighth of the cost, right? No question. And we've been doing these spaces, and I'll show you some. But we also kind of like, I also kind of didn't really know what I was doing. So I started to work with a restorative justice practitioner, thank God I found her early on, and social worker, who invited me like, hey, you want to address this system, why don't you come into a prison and a jail? I had never been in one. And it changed my life. You know, I started, we created a toolkit. To work in high security settings settings with incarcerated men and women all over the country with hundreds of men and women. where we came in with all the tools that we use every day, translated into a correctional safe environment and asked them, what kind of environment do you need to repair the worst thing you've ever done, your life crime? What do you need to heal yourself? They were beginning to process feelings. Their ideas were tremendous. I learned so much from them and I could really see the humanity and the human capital that was being caged in these places and the ideas, and I learned from that, and we're able to move forward, right, and start real world projects. So one of the first projects that we did, this is the Near West Side Peacemaking Project. It's in Syracuse, New York. It was with the Center for Court Innovation out of New York, the Navajo Nation, the the local prosecutors and DA's office was part of this. Uh, local community members, and what happened is, local community members would get trained in peacemaking, and they would moderate quality of life crimes. So you stole my purse, you stole my car. Rather than go to court, this is a diversion program. You would go into a restorative process in the community. And the reason I say this is a lesson, in a way, is because what happens, place comes later, right? We make a policy, we make a place, you know, we make a program. People are designing programs, not architectural programs, right? But this is a program that was created and they make them and they never consider place almost never and so i think as we look at whole systems change, where i want to be architecturally and spatially is at the beginning you're designing the program you're implementing the program and we're working on the space at the same time and so what i did is i got trained as a circle keeper so i learned to run circles what I created was a process called the peacemaking palette where I would go into the community because people had never done peacemaking before. Has anyone here ever done some peacemaking, or peacemaking process? There's always one, there's always one. Two, you know, it's new for most of us. So I had them bring object, texture, material, color. We, we, we did a circle with a talking stick. Then we would role play. So I had people role playing. We were diagramming because I had no sight. I didn't know what was in a peacemaking center. I had absolutely no idea. But through that process, I was able to get a very clear idea of the spatial needs and context. And so it's not enough to know the spatial needs of the building. The location is everything, everything. You can't just plunk the thing down anywhere you go. This is like the near west side is a half a mile from the justice corps. And I'll talk about justice corps later, right? They're where you keep all the, all this stuff, all the justice stuff, it's, it's too far. People can't get there, they have no car. They got kids, they can't get their kids there. Uh, it's not some place they want to go because it's the, the elite structure. So it took us long, a long time to find a site because it had to be on neutral territory. That's often in our work. The place, we have turf issues, right? There are gang wars. Things are happening that you can't see. So it has to be in the right place. So it took us a while and we found a place, right? We found an old drug house, actually, and we turned it into a peacemaking center. It had all the requirements people asked for. They wanted a garden with outdoor space, right? They wanted it to feel small in scale. They wanted a kitchen. They wanted cool off space. They wanted it to feel like a le- like a comfortable place to be. So this is where they would go to actually have the difficult dialogue. So we did that. We made that for them. We did exactly what they asked. And this is what I love. This is the impact. It goes beyond anything that I had imagined, right? What started to happen here is that the police started to drop people off here. That was not expected. People started to come here to have quinceañera parties, to have their baby showers. Kids were coming by from the school. The school itself was diverting the most difficult cases to this peacemaking program. There was so many people were coming by. They actually had to hire more staff. It was bursting at the seams. And what was happening is the space was actually providing a place for social cohesion. And social cohesion, right, relationships, that's what keeps us safe. And the only pain point in this project is just not enough, right? They need more of them. They actually are trying to get one now in every neighborhood, but a small project like this can be so impactful and so mighty. So that kind of leads me to another point. We've got to lead the conversation. Like we can't sit back and wait for the RFP and wait for the competition to come to us. We have ideas we can lead. So I partnered with the Institute for the Future. They're futurists. I didn't even know what futurist was until I met them, but they think about the future. And so we were able to do a convening. We led the dialogue. We invited the police. Uh, We invited restorative justice practitioners into the room. We invited city government officials. And we spent a whole day thinking about what if Oakland would be the country's first restorative justice city, right? Primary way of addressing harm in our community would be do restorative justice first. What would be the infrastructure we would need to do that? And, you know, beautiful ideas came out of it. We were able to map that data. The ideas that came out was like a whole constellation of restorative justice hubs tied to existing schools uh, and community centers, connections up to the green uh, wilderness of Oakland, which is actually immense that most people don't get access to. We have a 15-year life expectancy for people living, from people living in the hills to the flatlands, right? They just, they live longer. And just an idea of what that center could be like, but what was wild is that white circle you see in that very spot we were able to actually get start to build that infrastructure. So out of that dialogue, we were able to work with 2 nonprofits, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and Causa Justa, Justa Just Cause, it does immigrant rights and tenant rights to create the country's first center for restorative justice and restorative economics. So you can see how driving the dialogue actually leads to new prototypes that have never existed before. And it was also a model we were trying to do where we not only were doing the architecture, but we also helped them find the building and we negotiated the purchase and sale agreement on the project and help with financing. So it was the beginning of my attempt to bring design and real estate into in-house with one project. It's about a hundred year old building. We gutted it, right? We selected it for restorative justice because we knew it was going to have to happen here. So we knew the criteria from doing the Syracuse piece on what was needed, but the restorative economics piece was new to us, right? So what happens here is that Low-wage restaurant workers get living wage jobs and fine dining, has the country's largest fine dining training kitchen. This includes formerly incarcerated people, folks who might be undocumented, right? So a lot of folks are coming here to train and learn. It's also the headquarters for the community organizers. I'll talk a lot about them because we do whatever they say, we just follow them around, but they need space to organize and to move but it also has the county's first dedicated space for restorative justice. So we gutted the building and put this co-located. You can see the systems, right, starting to intersect with each other in the same place. And that's what matters, right? This location is neutral territory. It's near public transport. It has two entrances, like we needed to, and it's serving all the population in the region and doing all of these things at once. And this is the impact, right? They're able to serve food to people in the community out of the kitchen. They're incubating small food businesses here, right? That's all about the restorative economics piece. Uh, The whole building, which is part of our ethos, has become like a gallery, right? The outside of the building, the inside, social justice, arts and culture is a critical force in whole systems change. We need to be part of that. And this is one way that they were starting to do it. The restorative justice space is used all the time, all the time. They're doing trainings in there. They have formerly incarcerated men and women's circles in there, community building circles. So, what it's doing is the space is incubating a new way of practice and a new way of living. It's a power of place. And they even set up a fund that people can invest in the restaurant, right? So, can you see the multiple stacking of functions, right? That begins to happen when you can step out and start to build these new models with community. And so part of the way we're doing it and part of the way we need to do, is we have to work across discipline. When I teach, I only course I ever teach right now, I open it to the whole school. I have linguists in my class, all kinds of folks. That's an external, right? Externally working across discipline internally. We have real estate developers on my team, architects. We have a community engagement team, right? They're not architects, but boy, do they know how to engage community in thinking about this stuff. We have communicate and advocate. Right? We have got to get the information out because what we found is the community organizers were using our collateral, right? The imaging, the renderings to stop building prisons and jails. I had no idea, right? The images we create, they actually, you can be using those to create policy change and to shift things. And then we have to prove that it works, right? I know we care about design and architecture. We think it's awesome. But let me tell you guys out in the world, people don't care that much. They don't believe that it matters, but we know it does. So I got to prove it, right? So the, the evaluation of the projects is critical for us being to elevate how important what we do is for whole system change. And then we have to build the models. We can't just building the same stuff. That requires our research and development time. You've got to give it the time to develop, right? Engage people, do the research, test the models, prototype, all of that. This is our theory of change, right? This is the way programs work. This is how they do, right? They they create a model program, social service program, whatever. They evaluate and they replicate it. We need to do that. We can do that with buildings, right? And with architecture. And so that's how we've been operating. And this is the most important thing I think we can do, right? It sounds all fuzzy. Ooh, it's a night radical imagination, but for real, you all like, it's critical. Everyone's like, oh, what is your biggest challenge? It's not the money. It's the mind. Right? It's what people think is possible. Our tools, we're all creative people in here. You have the capacity to ignite other people's imaginations using the tools that you are learning right now. I just use the same stuff we all use. We build models, we do drawings. And what happens is, it's, this is what happens when you do kinesthetic creative work, your brain chemistry changes and it moves into something called elastic thinking. And in elastic thinking, you can come up with new ideas and think new things. And I swear to you, I have seen it happen a million times the hardest cases right bureaucrats inside of prisons and jails with people who were like why are we even doing arts and crafts that's what I've been accused of coming in with arts and crafts and I tell you in 30 minutes y'all sometimes less they're losing their minds it's like they're having the best day of their life so it's powerful I'm very serious it's like and it's essential we will not move into this next world if we don't do this and we have a responsibility to be doing this all of this is part of our concept development process this is both design, real estate, sometimes program development, sometimes policy change. We do it all together. And at the end, what we have is a feasibility study that allows people to go build a new prototype, right? It includes all the financing. Here's how we're going to pay for it. Here's It's all pretty, right? The pretty pictures are not enough. It has to go with the whole piece. And we've been very successful in doing this for, I've been doing this now for over 10 years. And I can tell you right now, this is the infrastructure we need to build to mass incarceration.
0: Now, one of the comments that Miss Van Muren makes in this lecture series, bomber lecture series, is that uh, not many people are interested in architecture. She talks about when you go out there; she's talking to other students of architecture. You go out in the world; people are just not that interested. They don't—they don't really care. I think some of that problem stems from the fact that design, in general, and that includes architecture, is not promoted. Uh, as much as it should be at the younger ages. Uh, Socialization into information, uh, it has a huge impact in general. Uh, My research has shown that uh, when my PhD in education, if you socialize kids to respect certain types of information and understand it, uh, a lot of them will find interest in it and will continue sharing that information. So when I was doing the research, On this topic i did not find as much information as i wanted on architecture and design curriculum in schools yes there's tons of it in college but i'm talking about elementary school middle school high school a lot of the information was on high school i could not find anything in the united states on schools that actually have this type of curriculum in elementary schools What I did find is that our wonderful Getty Museum education uh, website has a link to architecture and design curricula for elementary school and high school levels. So they do have information that can be used by teachers in elementary schools. What I also found out that on the West Coast, Luckily, there are a lot of high schools that do have architecture curriculum. Now, they have it mixed and blended in with design or engineering. So, for example, the California Department of Education has a high school uh, level engineering and architecture standards uh, for curriculum pathway, which is great. So, it's already out there. Uh, they, I want to see what I am not finding is elementary level information, curriculum, and I'm not finding schools that are implementing this at the elementary level. I think one solution would be that there needs to be uh, there needs to be organizations like, say, Miss Van Buren's organization, or the uh, AIA organization. I'm pointing my finger at you, AIA, and pushing for more architects to be guest speakers at the elementary school level or visiting be guest speakers at high school at high schools as well but also introducing themselves at their ne- ne- at nearby elementary schools and giving information about design and architecture the AIA pushing for the use of the curriculum in art classes at the elementary school level. Uh, there are organizations out there that have a sufficient amount of power to do some pushing the pushing is not happening. From what I see, for example, at the high school level, there's, um, in California, there's the Long Beach Unified School District has a Sado Academy and CAMS. They both have uh, a design and engineering pathway. Uh, there's also um, the Turlock, you know, uh, Turlock USD includes an architecture pathway. It's a career technical education pathway. San Mateo Union High School has an architectural design pathway. Culver City High School has the same thing, an architectural design pathway. Uh, There's also uh, Yuba City Unified School District has an engineering and architecture pathway. There is uh, a lot of push at the high school level, but there needs to also be a a socializing and orientation process at the elementary school level to be kind of a foundation for kids once they get into high school. So that way they already have some information, some knowledge, basic knowledge of design and some interest, uh, which would fuel uh, their efforts at the high school level. Even uh, Fremont High School in Oakland has an architectural academy pathway. Uh, so we're, we see that uh, there at the high school level, it, there are uh, opportunities, but you need to fuel uh, does an interest in design in the elementary school level. And that's my uh, concern in regards to how you can reinforce social justice architecture interests at different levels. I'm going to close this episode on social justice architecture with uh, advice from an architect, William Letty, who is in San Francisco as well. An article, it's a 2023 article uh, titled, Architecture is a social justice issue. Practice with purpose. And what is the first thing that is listed? Design culture. Early design education. Young people need to be introduced to the relevance of architecture and design at an early age. Diverse perspectives. A broader spectrum of design talent should be nurtured in advance. Project selection. Whenever possible, select projects intentionally. While civic buildings, community centers, and affordable housing developments are obvious candidates for directly engaging EDI. Design process. Site selection. When the opportunity presents itself to participate in site selection, architects should support under communities by advocating for the location of affordable multifam- multifamily housing and other community-serving projects. Inclusive design begins with a robust dialogue between architects and the community of future occupants and neighbors. Simple tools. EDI design does not have to be difficult. Simple tools include online surveys, community design workshops, as well as other solutions and tools. Design for all, the concept of universal design. Basically, refer to a set of nine design strategies that welcome everyone regardless of their abilities. Arrival, the public face of a building, what does it communicate? It needs commu- It needs to communicate inclusion, serenity. People with all types of disabilities, uh, including autism, they need to be included in the design process and thought of. Design for health, health and resilience. Everybody has a right to a healthy, resilient indoor environment. And the list goes on. Design with a purpose. Practice with a purpose. And so I hope that I was able to inform you about social justice architecture and give you something to think about. And hopefully you as a citizen and a member of a neighborhood or community get involved to promote uh, such endeavors. So this is episode one of that Fram episode. And I will give you more information on another topic for next episode two, I wish you well. The Fram episode.